Welcome to Backstage with John Taylor Ward, where we get to know some of the amazing artists who make the Lakes Area Music Festival possible. I'm your host, as well as one of the founders of the festival, and today it's my pleasure to welcome Alexander Pena, who's one of the festival's other three founders, as well as our youth education director. We discuss his development as an artist and an educator, as well as problems of racial bias in classical music and fond memories of the founding of LAMF. Please welcome Alex. Hello, Alex Pena, how are you? I'm doing great, having a wonderful time, starting off my summer uh, as best as I can, given the situation. Yeah, of course. I know that this is a strange end of the school year, but you're just about done now, is that right? That's correct. Uh, Hawaii schools typically finish right around the last week of May or early June. And so I just uh, finished a lower school orchestra awards ceremony, wrapped up the year with graduation last week, and now begins a little bit of freedom for me. Well, congratulations. Um, I feel like it, we can't start these conversations anyway right now other than talking about racial injustice and the uh, position of black and brown people in the classical music industry. Um, you yourself are Mexican-American. I wondered sort of just where has your mind been at these weeks? Ooh. Well, it's been all over the place, I think, like many people. Um, and perhaps maybe one of the best ways to describe it is just to think of my own progression through what one would call a professional life as a musician. Um, and just kind of thinking through all of that rather than maybe share what's on my mind right now. But, you know, for me, um, as you said, my parents both immigrated to the States in the 80s. I'm first generation to go to American colleges. Um, but mixed in with all of that is the sort of the sense of code switching and being able to pass. And so uh, whether or not I've been viewed as a brown person or not to others, or, or even have accepted that point for myself has always been something that's kind of been, there's been an ebb and flow there and something that's been in the back of my mind. And um, when I started classical music, I've shared this story with people before, but when I started classical music and I started getting very serious about it, that was kind of late, like in high school time. And once I started pursuing competitions and prestige and things like getting first chair and all those kinds of things or getting into music festivals or, you know, schools, concert conservatories, those kinds of things, um, I started to hear a little bit more of the whispering and the chatter when something would go well my way. It would be it's because, oh, he's Mexican. They needed some of those affirmative action numbers or those kinds of things. And of course, that's probably something that young people say when they're immature, not understanding fully what that means. But it's also something that they heard probably from the adults in their life at some point. Um, and that was really, really, really heartbreaking for me because as I sort of moved in the direction of wanting to become a professional musician, that sort of just robbed me of everything, of my ability to earn my right to call myself an artist and a musician and a performer. Um, and so I hid from it. Instead of facing it like head on, I hid for it for many years. Um, and it's subtle how I hid from it, but I didn't openly provide to people sometimes that I was a fluent Spanish speaker or um, I was okay with the enye, the tilde over my letter uh, in my last name to be left off programs or those kinds of things, or to not call myself in anything 
violist and now choose to call myself a Mexican-American violist. Um, those kinds of things were subtle, um, but they had a really big impact for me because as I went on through the path of defining my own career and my own place in the musical field, I wanted never to be robbed of that feeling that I was working hard and what I got was deserved it. Um, but what happened towards the end of college in those years and pre-professional life, you know, I stumbled upon organizations like the Sphinx organization. Um, El Sistema USA had really started to um, grow and talking about music and its place in education and communities of need, um, often impacting families that are brown and black. Um, and I started to realize that a lot of the feelings that I had internalized or a lot of things I was afraid of to talk about or to bring up started to really matter. And uh, the opportunity that I had as a well-educated, um, with lots of opportunity and bilingual and somebody who can pass and somebody who can speak from both places, uh, I started to realize that I was missing that opportunity to perhaps uh, inspire other young people. So if I had seen somebody myself that was really proud of it or, or working toward it, or looking at many of the musicians and colleagues that I see now really amplifying their voices. Um, if I had seen more of that when I was a young person, I think I would have probably matured a lot faster and gotten to a place that was a lot more loving, self-loving and self-healing earlier. And uh, my confidence would have just been a lot better from early on. So it's, it's something that I share that story because now anytime my name is professionally used, you better damn believe I forced them to put that NA on there. And if they mistake it somewhere else, I make sure that they know how to do it. It's all at 164, or you can also command N, or you can just type it into Google and then copy and paste it. It's really no excuse. Have questions today with Alexander Pena. I'll say one other thing about that. Okay. Specifically, my last name, Pena, without the NA phonetically turns into the word Pena which is actually shame or embarrassment. So me da pena is it gives me shame or it gives me embarrassment. And I like couldn't think of any other better really like uh, sort of play on words that makes me explain how I felt about hiding my Mexican-ness, my brownness, yeah. or maybe not hiding it, but not illuminating it or putting it to the forefront. Right. Um, and that internalized shame or embarrassment that was there for many years, that's just not how I feel. And I think a lot of us musicians and artists um, are starting to realize that we need to amplify our voices and we need to set the example and we need to create that space for ourselves first and then for our local communities second and then of course more globally. Exactly and I don't feel like I've felt the sort of collective power of musicians in in response to music organizations. I think this is the first time in my career I think that I've seen working musicians who do theoretically have something to lose by speaking out really yeah. demanding that the organizations that they work for are are accountable and actually taking action to serve the communities that, that they need to serve. Absolutely. It's very interesting. Um, I, and I, and I, you know, I, I allowed all of our colleagues and friends who are taking those vulnerable steps to do so because we do need to lift each other up. That you mentioned uh, in there something about the rock music collaborative. This is something that uh, we've known each other for a long time at this point. Um, oh, well, our age now, we're getting to that point. Where we it's <laughs> true, it's true. We're now legitimately old friends. Yeah. Um, 
but the whole uh, opportunity of what rock music was for you and what you ended up creating there, I know was a super complex organism that took many, many years to assemble. But, and, and to be honest, I don't think I ever understood everything that was going on with it. Um, so talk to us a little bit about that opportunity, how it came to you, where you were in your career and, and sort of what, what you ended up creating there. Let me just let me take a quick step back and say that, you know, I, I went to Eastman and I, throughout my undergrad and my master's specifically, really chose to do both uh, degrees and study in viola performance and then music education and to keep that up pretty much the entire time. Even when some people told me to focus on one or the other or that you can't do both or those kinds of things. And I think one of the responses that I used to end up getting in the habit of saying was, look, these two things can inform each other and I can become a better educator by being a better performer and I can be a better performer by bringing in what it is that I do when I teach because I firmly believe that every time I teach in front of a class that is like a live audience and they will laugh or tell me if it's not good or if what I'm getting, putting out is not great Yeah, very quickly. I have watched you in the classroom so I can verify that it is <laughs> a stunning performance. Thank you. Um, so I, I, you know, I just knew that perhaps maybe not at the beginning of my career, but somewhere in there, that there was a space for me. I just believed it firmly in my heart and I didn't know when it was going to come. But I, um, you know, music is my saving grace. And so I was willing to put my entire life in that direction without knowing necessarily what the job was going to be. The job was just a job and that was going to be later and that was something to figure out. And so I was done with my master's and, and, you know, playing with the Rochester Philharmonic and teaching at the Eastman Community Music School and moving in toward a senior faculty member where I was conducting and playing. And I really thought that I sort of had my dream situation set up. Um, then this whole world started hearing about Gustavo Dudamel and El Sistema and looking at access and um, entry points into classical music in a totally different way here in kind of the American public school system it's you know you, like if it's just, if your school or your community has that and can afford that in your district can play for that usually that's where you start or depending on different kinds of settlement schools or community schools that may be your entry point but yeah. ultimately it was really quite um astonishing the numbers and the access and availability to uh to music and arts programming in a lot of communities across the country specifically urban and rural communities right um, and, and could you, could I back you up just for a second? And um, El Sistema is something that some people might not have heard of. Uh, could you, yeah. could you El talk Sistema, a little bit about what it is? Sure, yeah, it translates as the system, but it's, um, it's a, at least how it started was a government supported uh, program for social change in communities that were suffering in Venezuela. This is pre-government and economic problems that we currently see today. It basically was, like I said, a government-sponsored systematic approach at embedding music programs everywhere in communities of need. So not bringing them to Eastman or bringing them to McPhail in Minneapolis or bringing them to the places where the music's already happening, but actually starting what they call nucleos, starting musical hubs right in garages, um, community centers. Some of them were in jails. Some of them were in the small, tiny room at the bottom of a church, things like that. And it was about pushing those programs out, using music for positive social change to have impact on various 
factors um, to lift people out of the cycle of poverty, things like teen pregnancy, education, the list goes on. Uh, El Sistema made it towards the States and they won um, a very big prize actually from the TED Talk people, the TED Talk organization. It, it sort of El Sistema had made it uh, already kind of somewhat um, through those channels. And then there was some kind of like annual big award, you know, that was to support an idea and El Sistema won. And what happened was they created a program through the New England Conservatory to start, I think it was like 12 or something like that, fellows to learn how to become directors and program creators. And then to basically launch out into the United States in different places and create those programs. Some of the most famous programs these uh, currently were led by that initial cohort of fellows. Um, programs like uh, Yola, which is now one of the big leaders in LA. Play on Philly is one of the big examples of that. Um, and so El Sistema USA, it's one of its main goals has not been to just copy exactly, carbon copy what is happening in Venezuela, but to look at how to apply it in the United States American system of education and funding. We have a completely different model with regards to grant funding and nonprofit structure and those kinds of things. But right. it's not a methodology, it's not a book, it's not like a pedagogy. It's really, a, it's really an idea, a way of going about creating community-based and community-informed music programming for social change, but it can look like a lot of different things. And so I my- to, Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, my program, Rock Music, isn't, it's Senza K, Sans K. It's Rock, R-O-C, Rochester, the airport code music. Yeah. And we specifically focused on uh, K through 12 music education in one of the poorest um, concentrated poverty uh, communities in the entire country, which is downtown Rochester. Um, and of course there was connections to my alma mater. I was living there as an adult man. And so I basically poured myself into that program and uh, my El Sistema program, Rock Music, was a collaborative between the Eastman School, Rochester Phil, the city of Rochester mayor's office, the city public school district, um, uh, Hochstein School of Music, it was, and, and the Gateways Music Festival, which is another big organization that promotes um, Black and African musicians of all kind. And um, it was a pretty big job to have when you were 25, but like I said, it was incredibly inspiring and it just sort of rung a chord within me that resonated and I was scared, but I, when they needed a new director uh, and really to move the program into a more um, visible and kind of next phase of growth, uh, that's when I started. So I think I had like 30 students when I started at one site. And by the end of it, um, I had funded and prepared for four sites and having over 100 students at the program. So it really grew fast, but it was a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it was a huge success. I remember going back to visit you in Rochester a couple of times when, uh, when you were working on that. And that sort of large-scale cooperation between huge um, entities, uh, you know, there you've got what government, community entity, and an academic institution. It was, it was amazingly successful from what I saw, but it did, it did really seem a lot. Yeah, and there was, there was like a reciprocal benefit to it too, as a performing professional musician that was at times still playing with the Rochester Phil, and that was that not that I ever saw myself this to begin with, but I started to become um, a liaison somewhat between a professional performing arts organization like the Philharmonic and the musicians and the conductors and looking at how they can make bridges to communities that they may not have felt a part of. Yeah, so that was and for me. And like you said, it's, it's always been a symbiotic 
kind of relationship for any choice that I decide to do and to work toward. It's, it's to bring in um, all of the various aspects of what I do and what I believe in. And it's something that, you know, can be, you can, you can see a parallel of that with what we did at Lakes Area Music Festival in a rural community and why I was so excited to start an education program that looked at building meaningful and relevant experiences for kids, but also having them kind of have access points and entry points into meeting some of the musicians that they'll see on stage from around the world. For sure. And I hadn't really put together how the ethos of Elsa's demo was so similar to the ethos of Lakes Area Music Festival in terms of making a little hotspot of, of culture yeah. and music and all of these things and seeing how that can impact the community and not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but like it's it, it has been really amazing to watch this community grow over the past 10 years. Um, and Absolutely. also that yeah, sense of collaboration. Oh, go ahead. Sense of collaboration. And you also talked about having a voice that in terms of this initial program was as a performer, as an administrator, and as an educator. And I feel like that is such a huge thing that's going on now in terms of the music industry, right? Um, I think even when we were probably in high school and undergrad, there was much more of a sense of these are your career paths that you can take. Yeah. And if you're doing this, then there's this path over here. If you're doing that, then there's this other path. And I think it's really fascinating people like you who have um, sort of been able to step outside of that and say, this is me and this, these are my skills and these are my interests. And um, how is my career going to fit around that rather than yeah. the other way around? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the challenges that that you might see in you know urban impoverished programs or organizations or communities and rural ones you know they're not they're they're completely different ways of maybe fixing the problem but the challenges are very similar like you're saying um and ultimately this idea i remember when when um like farm to table and like food sources became a really kind of more mainstream topic that we all understood sure uh, and we have made as a country considerable efforts and change in that in that arena. It's like the same thing with arts organizations. There are musical deserts and artistic deserts everywhere. They can be in rural areas, they can be in downtown communities. And I think, like you said, finding these connections and just saying, look, it is our job as performers, artists, uh, it's the jobs of organizations to increase access, availability, and entry points to all of these. Sometimes not by if you build it, they will come mentality but to say we will provide those bridges and we're coming at you i can't think of a better time to to continue that discussion now that we're all on hopefully most of us online and have that access point i think about sure. access to internet and the reality of it is, is this is maybe a little too political but that this is sort of now a right that everyone needs in this world we need yeah. to provide internet for everybody because then everyone can at least have some level of education or some opportunity to be able to to see the world and understand more perspectives and i and um, that's something that i hope to see after this pandemic after this year after all of this just think now that that we realize that we can continue life somewhat through a digital online experience um i do not want to see more deserts with yeah. out internet access in the world i just don't think we're, we're past that we can we can we can do better right yeah so we touched on this 
briefly, but uh, there's kind of an analogy there because I feel like we were both in Rochester, New York for the beginning of that like farm to table, organic, fancy coffee shop, like hipsterization of a town like Rochester, which is, as you said, uh, a very impoverished downtown, especially when we were there and even especially 10, 20, 30 years before we yeah, were there. Yeah, of two cities, it's haves and have nots. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so we, we really got to witness the transformation of, of that place, you even more than me, staying, um, staying for a few more years. Um, but that brings me back to our, our shared experience just as friends. I wanted to go back and think of the early years of the festival. Of course, for uh, Alex is one of the original five people who came to work at Lost Lake Lodge in Brainerd and serve tables and live in student housing, or no, not student housing, employee housing. I think we were roommates <laughs> for a while even. Um, tell me about Tell me about that time and what this place and those early years of the festival meant for you. It was something that, that a lot of us kept coming back and I don't actually understand the rationale behind that decision, but there was, there was something about that shared experience that has kept us coming for 12 years now. Yeah. Tell me about that time. I think it's a few things. I think for me, you hear this idea echoed in the LGBTQ community, and you see it a lot also among musicians and artists, this idea that um, you have to find and create your family, your friend's family. And um, mm -hmm. that was true for me for a variety of reasons. My parents were going through a divorce and were post-bankrupt. And uh, I was, I think, just freshly coming out of being in the closet for them. So there was just a lot of other stuff. Um, but the idea that um, we had a friend with an idea, <laughs> Scott, who said, you know, how about this for the summer? We'll still do music. We'll still be friends. We'll still have our safe zone. We'll still hang out. And we're gonna have a great time while we're doing it. And try it out. You know, I don't, I was, I'm a, I'm a coast boy. I grew up in California. I love New York and was even coast, close to the coast in Texas for the Gulf of Mexico. I'm big right. states, used to big cities. I'm used to uh, a lot of different kinds of people in a lot of different kinds of places. Um, and the Midwest and specifically Northern Minnesota wasn't on my list necessarily. Um, but the idea that you, you trust your friends and, and you take a chance and you stick with them. And so I think that's kind of what got me to be okay with that idea. Yeah. Um, and to keep coming back and, you know, it's sort of like investing in your own life when you, when you decide to be close to people and, and share love with them. You, I hope that they show up to your wedding and they show up to those important events and they, and that you can call Unless them. Unless they the have party. a rehearsal. Unless they have a rehearsal that they can yeah. get out of. Um, but, and, the, and, and, and you and Scott have been perfect examples and many of, of our friends in, uh, from LAMF have been examples of that throughout my entire life. So I would say that, um, there was also this really refreshing like energy about Brainerd and Minnesota, at least to me that I had never really experienced. Um, I had to learn a little bit about what Minnesota nice was, but beyond that, uh, there was also a real, um, 
a real love for life in that part of the country. I think people know how to enjoy their time outside. They know how to enjoy their time inside for a lot of the winter and they know how to enjoy their time with each other. And um, when we were working, working at the restaurant was pretty cool because I got to just meet not like Scott's inner circle and his family's inner circle, but just like the community, even people from the Twin Cities that were vacationing up and those kinds of things. And I just, I'm a talker, you can tell I'm long-winded. And, um, and so for me, I also probably stuck out. I'm a little bit uh, darker skin tone. I didn't have a beard at the time, but I had long wild hair and maybe I did have a beard, I don't remember. Um, but I stuck out and I, I think people knew that I was from somewhere. I know that communities used to having people from all around the world work there over the summer, but I was a little bit different, uh, yeah. domestic version of an outsider. Right. And <laughs> still, I still loved talking about what it is that I was doing and what my life was and who I was here with. And um, I think I got awarded like sort of unofficially like the, the word of mouth award that summer and talking to as many people as possible about coming to our concerts over me selling them wine and that kind of thing. But um, I, I, you know, of course there are isolated experiences and that's not what I'm going to speak to. I just felt like people were willing to accept me there. And at that particular time in my life, um, I needed another home. Yeah. And so the universe brought me there and kept bringing me there. And now I think the universe by keep going there, keep going. And then I, yeah. I just, I don't know. That's just how it feels. It's, it is my summer home. And that's everyone that meets me even here in Hawaii. I tell, where are you from? It's like, oh gosh, I don't know how to explain that question. But there are a few things that I say. And one of them is my summer home is Minnesota. Right. That's, I had not thought about it in that way, but I feel like, yeah, a lot of us at that point needed another home, like needed a place to stake out being an adult and like, yeah. you know what I mean? Oh, I definitely, I definitely you're the agree. baby of the founders, of course, but like Gosh. we were, we were, Scott and I were 21, right? And so you Yeah, were I don't like think I was 21 and I was selling wine. I do, yeah, I think you're right. Okay, yeah. But yes, yeah, so just to break in with an anecdote um, about your verbosity. Um, <laughs> yes, you you did do the best job of chatting up every table about the Lake Area Music Festival, but I also remember every time closing the restaurant and being in the kitchen, like probably one time, and just like walking in and being like, "Oh my God, Alex is talking to a table." Oh, totally. Okay. <laughs> it's a good strategy when you're because you're like busy. You can't like sweep. Oh yeah. You gotta you gotta spread the word. <laughs> Yeah, that's even like what I do here with my husband. Like whenever we host, I'm like, I'll be front of the house. I'm just gonna like zhuzh everyone, talk everyone. But like, oh my yeah. gosh, good for you for being able to do that. I cannot like, I cannot let any guest out of my sight when they're like <laughs> mine. <laughs> so now, like, you are in a very place, very different place than Rochester, New York, both in terms of what you were doing career-wise and in terms of. I would guess most aspects of life. Like, <laughs> tell me what what are you doing now? And and yeah. yeah. Well, I live on the island of Oahu, and uh, the city is Honolulu, and I'm in Hawaii now. Um, I moved here two years ago. Um, I was recruited for an incredible position at an incredible school with an incredible community. Um, the school is called the Ilani School. It's within Kina. 
little apostrophe, applying apostrophe. And the Iolani School has some history. Um, it was founded after a gift from Queen Emma, who is known as kind of the arts and humanities and music supporter of the uh, great Royal Hawaiian family. Um, Iolani School is uh, one of the three larger private school entities here on the island and um, has had a long history, um, really, really giving back to the community, but also just a long history of excellence. It's a collegiate preparatory school, um, K through 12 independent private school. And um, it is going through a, a great love, a amount of change right now. It's opened up an international boarding school. So now we have students from all around the world. Um, it's expanding the K-1 kindergarten through first community with new programs and buildings there, including dance. Um, and we launched a couple of years ago, the Sullivan Center for Innovation and um, Leadership, which is, does incredible work in science field and engineering field. They have engineered like thousands of face shields for the entire island of Hawaii and all of the emergency responders, but also are doing like our student-driven research on many of the endangered birds um, and water species here in Hawaii. Um, so I've, I've landed in a place that is really uh, one of the most incredible teaching kind of style institutions that I could imagine. Yeah. Um, specifically, their arts program is strong and their orchestra program is strong. I didn't know anything really about the program before, but they are nationally recognized having won first place at the American String Teachers Association National Orchestra Festival competition. So they've mm -hmm. been first place winners in the past and have been um, also invited to prestigious events like Midwest Clinic more than once and uh, taken an our semi-annual tour to various performing organizations around the world. It's a high caliber group that plays professional level pieces at the top. And I have eight orchestras in the full program with uh, over 230 kids here. We also have an adjacent Suzuki program, an adjacent lesson program, and a scholarship program for chamber music with 10 uh, string quartets in that. Um, so it's unusual because I have a program that's incredibly funded, incredibly supported, and um, it was essentially gifted to me as uh, its new director. And, um, but everyone's asked me like, how the heck did you, what, like, where, where did that all happen? And it goes back to leaving all the doors open and just believing in what you want. Um, I got a phone call randomly out of the blue after my 30th birthday. I'd just come back from Thailand with Samantha Rodriguez, our good friend and violist. And um, we were in that place where we were just exploring other options in life. And I get this phone call and it's from the head of the headmaster or the head of the school here. His name is Dr. Timothy Cottrell. And he was the former head of school at the Harley School in Rochester, New York, which oh, is where wow. I had my first job during my master's okay. uh, as orchestra director there when I was like, I don't know, like 21 maybe? I don't know. Um, and so uh, he called and he said, you know, I'm interested in you. You've always been a young whippersnapper and I hear you're doing great things in Rochester now and there might be a position that we would want to bring you over for. Mm -hmm. And so I went through the process and um, like you said, it is a big, uh, it, it's like almost like a lateral uh, move in my career in some ways, but for me, it wasn't, I wasn't looking to leave Rochester or move or, yeah. I, and I was completely happy with the work that I was doing there. I could have done it for many years. And so a lot of it came to questions of family, you know, me and my now husband, what we wanted to do next in our lives. Um, but it also had to do with um, developing and fueling my soul, which is something that I um, got a, a very nice private message from one of our Eastman professors, Kenny Grant, who stopped me in my tracks and said, what have you done to fuel you and your soul for a while? I had been at rock music for five years and 
been working at Eastman for like eight years and living in Rochester for 12. And so it kind of, when an opportunity came, I thought, let's look into this more. One of the great things about uh, the position I have here in Hawaii is my predecessor is a full-time first violinist with the Hawaii Symphony and has been for over 20 years. And so I was walking into a situation where the school and my administration was going to support me playing with the professional performing arts organization here, however they could, which was a check for me. Um, I was getting myself connected to a chamber music festival here in Hawaii and a young whippersnapper like yourself who was starting a music festival named Chris Yick. He has the Hawaii Chamber Music Festival that I'm now working with. And I was able to see that, uh, that Hawaii may have the, the right uh, sort of pie chart, the right balance of all the things that I wanted to do with playing and teaching and, and like you said, working with arts organizations, supporting them how I can. Yeah. And I was lucky. I'm very detail oriented and think through a lot of um, possibilities and it has worked out really well. I'm really happy here in Hawaii and I'm happy to continue um, developing a life here. I've since then, we brought our cat over from New York, but I adopted a doggy. So that's been mm -hmm. a lot of uh, the joy in our life right now and surfing and hiking and all that good stuff. Yeah, excellent. Um, that makes me think. So when somebody is thinking about hiring Alex Pena for something, and sorry, Alexander Pena, I, I know that you're professionally Alexander, but as a, as a long time friend, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take an Alex. Um, so you are getting more than just an educator, more than a performer, more than an administrator. You're getting somebody who has all of these experiences and all of this understanding of a lot of different things. And I wanted to ask you, because I'm assuming knowing you, that all of those different identities come together to form one sort of artistic voice in, in everything that you're doing. And I really believe that that's true. And this is very abstract, but could you describe what is that, what is that voice that you've discovered over these years that, that is true for everything you do? Like, who is that, who is that person and what are they trying to say with with their art and their education and their oversight? Gosh, it's funny, like, like I feel like I, I would imagine many of us do this, ask this very question to ourselves almost daily, if not multiple times yeah. a day. Um, I'll start with just maybe with the first thing that kind of, when, as you were asking the question, I, I, was, I was just letting it wash over me and just kind of feel. And I think that's actually one of the, the way that I approach music is that it, I just let it wash over me, both viscerally, emotionally, cognitively, and I, it just makes me feel so much. So, so, so much. Yeah. Um, so the thing that comes to mind is this incredible sense of gratitude for the ability to learn how to feel. And that's what music has done for me. I think growing up, you know, like that whole like immigrant story, you, pile in some um, Catholicism into that, you pile in some issues of masculinity and, and worried about my own sexuality and orientation and coming out late. I learned how to, I remember growing up, I learned how to bottle everything up. I just mm -hmm. did and I was able to smile through it. But I mean, I remember my friends throughout middle school and high school would always say like, we don't feel anything, we don't get, and not only that, I was like germaphobic. 
and also like really um, type A about certain things. Like I wouldn't give hugs. I just didn't like feeling. Um, and so the whole process of what music has given me has been how to feel and therefore how to communicate and express. And there's a there's a there's a saying in El Sistema um, ideology that is like when you give a student the um, sort of the treasure of understanding and feeling music and art inside, they become rich regardless of finances for the rest of their lives or something like that. Yeah. And I think that's what music has done for me. It has made my life so much better in all things, small and large, that I just approach everything from a sense of hopefully gratitude. And that's how I try to even perform and try to just try to eliminate myself from it and just share what it is that, that it's provided for me and I don't even know what that is but it's yeah. just incredible and I you know I, I I just I'm gonna chase that for the rest of my life I think it's just right. chase that feeling that music gives me and there's so many of them but yeah. that's and I awesome. totally see that in you as a as a colleague and as a performer and all of those things that that really resonates with with what I know of what you do so thanks that's really great appreciate that yeah of course so you are one of the founding members of the Lake Erie Music Festival, and you've been uh, running our youth education program, Explore Music, for many years now. Um, this is obviously a different year than most, and <laughs> that program is going to be going online. What can uh, what can people expect from from this year's Explore Music? Yeah, well, we're looking at a couple of different options. I think one of the great things that LAMF is trying to do is put together some version of, you know, semi-created live performances that are pushed out so that we're not just sending, you know, old recordings out or those kinds of things, but looking at creating. Um, and so I think similarly, I, uh, that's what um, Explore Music is going to be looking at doing is creating some kinds of educational packages, sort of like a scavenger hunt, a musical activity box that you can, that parents and families and kids can use before one of our concerts or some one of our performances and then also potentially uh, so that they can engage with the music that's being displayed on their screens live and again that all goes back to the idea of building relevancy and meaningful experiences to music that is my belief in this kind of general music space with explore music yeah um of course we're still waiting on some of the details with you know what the state city and school district are saying there in brainerd and we're open and um, with open arms willing to accept what we need to do for everyone to stay healthy and happy. But um, basically what we wanna do our, as best as we can is continue the legacy of Explore Music, continue increasing um, young people in our audiences and their families and parents in our audiences and keep people engaged with what we have to offer so that when the world comes back, we are ready to continue on with many of the young people in Brainerd. Um, I also, you know, th this leaves opportunity also for us to think differently and think outside of the box a little bit, create some content that perhaps um, the Brainerd Lakes area can use, music teachers can use in the future and those kinds of things. So we're really looking at exploring all of these options and trying our best to make lemonade given lemons. Mm -hmm. But again, looking at, you know, educators are some of the most resourceful and creative people out there. And they're, you know, pretty much the entire country of educators like that had to go into distance learning and we didn't. And yeah. uh, I'm very proud of just any educator and all educators that were able to do that because it's not 
easy. It just wasn't. And it added a lot of work for many of us, even more work than what a normal day was. But we know, and we always think of the kids first and, and, and we know that they wanted us and needed us. And so, um, yeah, looking at something like Explore Music, again, it's, um, we have, we have, Kind of an interesting situation because many of our musicians are around the world they are used to recording themselves they have mics they have all of that um, so i'm hoping that um, what we will do is bring those musicians from their living rooms into students living rooms and have some ways that we can engage um, our student musicians and families with some of our um, loving lamf musicians um, through instrument demonstrations talks about the music or other activities so stay tuned for a little bit more of uh, details regarding that, but I know that our community of LIMF musicians is, um, believes in Explore Music for every year, every performance, every demonstration we've ever done. I get an outpour of support, um, and I see it, our musicians doing that straight to the kids and to their parents, but also to me to say thank you for investing in, in the youth, um, because, you know, sometimes that's not comfortable for everybody, and, yeah. and it's always really um, special to hear that from my colleagues on stage. I'm gonna let you go in just a second, but before I do that, I have a little list of flash questions for you. I just want an immediate, unconsidered answer. Oh my gosh. Okay, and let me know when you're ready to go. I think I'm, hold on, let me actually take a drink of water. Okay. You know? Maybe a deep breath, maybe a Srinivasa. <clears throat> Shoulders back. <laughs> Um, okay, let's do this. Favorite big cat? Ooh, my gosh. I like um, cats that are in isolation, the ones that are like solitary. So any one of oh, those. Like a, like a snow leopard? Yeah. I'm gonna go, I'm, I'm putting you down for snow leopard. Favorite pizza topping? Whew, I've learned to love mushrooms. Okay. Um, Backstreet Boys or sync? <laughs> I think Backstreet Boys. Okay. Um, favorite viola concerto? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, the Telemann viola concerto. Beautiful. Of myself. Um, Spice Girls or Destiny's Child? Destiny's Child. Lucky number? Eight. Chocolate or gummy bears? I will have to qualify it and say dark chocolate because I don't like milk chocolate. Okay. I maintenance. Favorite woodwind instrument? Ooh, I love oboe English horn. The friction and the sound is just gorgeous. And favorite superhero? Huh. Favorite superhero? I was really into the X-Men growing up and I think I love the parallels to like LGBT youth and thinking of them as like mutants, but then also as like strong and having superpowers. Mm -hmm. I feel like you're a storm queen. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what has been your TV show over these months? <laughs> um, what has my TV show been over the month? Well, Jeff and I watch a lot of things together. So we watch Jeopardy every time we finish dinner. That's like mm -hmm. our post dinner thing. You are um, old people. I know, it's really bad. Um, and I just started a new series called We're Here, which has several of the um, 
drag contestants and winners from RuPaul's drag show race. Mm -hmm. And um, what's great about it is the show looks at, um, rather than having contestants that want to win, but it actually like brings what they do to small communities. Many of them rural oh, nice. in our country. Oh, you and, watch this. Uh, oh, you should watch it because it actually has a lot of parallels to what we were discussing before about yeah. access and like, if you, you know, like not, not relying on the cities and people coming, leaving their cities and leaving their communities to go to the city, but instead bringing um, a space for them to their own small communities. Really powerful. Mm -hmm. so almost every episode now, I think I've cried like two or three times. There you go. That's what it's all about. Well, yeah. Alex, it's so good to see you. And thanks so much for taking so much time with us today. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to the next time I can see you. And I'm really looking forward to giving our audience a little peek into your life right now. Thank you so much. Let's do a little virtual like, and I hope to see you all, not just you, Taylor, but like the entire LMF community soon. I'm sure we'll connect online this year uh, more, but hopefully we can do start doing some hugs when we see each other again. I'm down. Take care. Thanks. Aloha. Bye. Oh, aloha. Thanks for tuning in to Backstage with John Taylor Ward. If you'd like any more information on the Explore Music program or any other of the programming from the Lakes Area Music Festival, please visit lakesareamusic.org or dial 218-ASK-LAMPF. I hope you'll tune in next time. Till then, bye. Thank you.